Welcome to Movie Maker. My name is Tim Malloy, and today my guests are Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe, the writers, directors, and stars of The Beta Test, out today. The Beta Test is set just a couple of years ago as Hollywood agents and the Writers Guild of America, the union representing Hollywood writers, faced off over the practice of packaging and packaging fees, as Cummings and McCabe will soon explain. In short, packaging is a practice where an agency collects a fee from a producer for assembling or packaging its clients into a project, stars, writers, directors, etc. In the beta test, Cummings plays an unscrupulous, soon-to-be-married agent who gets a very interesting offer in the midst of his agency's fight with the WGA. McKay plays a fellow agent who is a bit more level-headed. If the beta test is an attack on the old, agent-driven way of making movies, the making of the beta test suggests a new way forward for filmmakers. Cummings is a huge proponent of DIY filmmaking and crowdfunding, and in the latest issue of Movie Maker magazine, he explains how he made all three of his features since 2018. He and his team crowdfunded and partly self-funded the 2018 indie breakthrough Thunder Road, made for about $200,000, and then self-distributed Thunder Road, with Cummings holding on to a whopping 40% of the film. His next movie, the very fun Wolf of Snow Hollow, was made with Orion Pictures. And with the beta test, he goes back to crowdfunding. The film raised $350,000 using WeFunder, a crowd equity platform, and the film is released by IFC Films, but Cummings and his team still own 65% of it. It's very unusual for filmmakers to control that much of their own work, so you can see why Cummings is a big advocate of skipping the Hollywood studios and making movies yourself. We talk more about that and some very big spoilers for the beta test, which, don't worry, we'll warn you about, in this episode of Movie Maker. And now, here are Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe, writers, directors, and stars of The Beta Test, out now. Uh, PJ McCabe, Jim Cummings, welcome to Movie Maker. I am a huge fan of your work and I really enjoyed The Beta Test. Uh, I should say, I also enjoyed the last two Jim Cummings movies and I'm excited to see you not play a cop in this one. Me too. <laughs> it was nice to not have to wear the uniform. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Thank you. You did play a cop in Halloween Kills, and your your officer was named McCabe, if I'm not mistaken. Was that an inside joke? Pete McCabe uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit suspicious. We don't know. We have to ask. Yeah. You have to ask David Gordon Green. Yeah, it seems a bit too uh, convenient that that would be the name. Yeah, so I feel like there might be some obvious crossover there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I think that team just wanted to dunk on PJ that he wasn't in the movie. I'm just yeah, like, well, we got to we got to get him in the movie somehow. Yeah, I I I, I do appreciate it. it. It was a nice sentiment, but uh, yeah, they had to get me in there with Mike Myers somehow. So I appreciated that. So can you just give a basic rundown of what the beta test is about and what it's a reaction to? Sure. So the movie is about a talent agent in the fall of 2019 getting a letter in the mail inviting him to a no strings attached sexual encounter in a hotel room and he's engaged to be married in the next six weeks and he's going through all of the stress during the WGA packaging fight with the agency world. He's feeling a lot less utility in his job because of the way that the internet is shifting the landscape of Hollywood. And so he goes to the anonymous encounter and it's wonderful. And he never gets another letter and it, it starts to drive him crazy. So then the rest of the film is a bit like Chinatown if, uh, if, I, if the main character was an idiot. Um, <laughs> and it's very funny 
<laughs> but also very serious. And it was inspired by a thousand conversations that PJ and, have, PJ and I have had in Hollywood and all of our friends have had in different meetings with these people in suits. Um, and it just kind of became uh, this ambition to tell a story and to make it funny and a big fuck you to the system. Yeah, a big fuck you through to the system through this goofy LA noir engine detective story with an idiot, <laughs> an idiot protagonist uh, noir character instead of a suave guy, like which was funny to us. <laughs> well, PG, your character though is also an agent who I think is pretty smart. I mean, he tends to give good advice through the movie. So I'm curious about your relationships with your agents, if you have agents. I don't have any agents currently. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I have a manager who I love, uh, and I've had represent representation in the past that, uh, I've, I've had good relationships with, but yeah, I mean, we wanted to show the spectrum of, you know, like there's, there could be some people that are know what they're doing and could be helpful. I mean, he's kind of the family man opposite uh, Jordan, who's, you know, kind of this wacko guy going off cheating on his wife. Um, but he still, but he still does kind of smarmy stuff. He's still like, no, no, this guy's smart. Like you can't flatter. He's not going to work on this guy. He's still using tactics to get what they want and using deceit. He's still a liar. He's just maybe a little, a uh, little sunnier and seemingly less evil when he does it. But he still, he still is kind of a bad guy in his business practices. Um, but yeah, but he was good. He was good at helping Jordan kind of figure out uh, where the letter service was coming from and the whole digital data stuff. Uh, to kind of help further the story along. So he does have some brains in the in the agency world. And Jim, do you have an agent? I don't. So we had to fire them during the WGA packaging fight uh, in order to stay inside of the WGA, um, mm -hmm. which at that point was, I guess, not that disastrous. Like the majority of the work that I was getting was when someone called me on the phone and said, hey, I want you to act in this big movie or um, you know, PJ and I ran a crowdfunding campaign to make the money to finance this film. So like we were already completely outside of the Hollywood system um, doing stuff on our own, kind of creating our own studio in a way. So we didn't really need them. Um, so I had six agents and then had to fire them in order to, to support the WGA and the writers. But then the vast majority of them have left the agency world now to become producers. Uh, which is a mass exodus that's happened where people will leave the agency world because of the WGA packaging fight and COVID um, to start representation because if they are a manager, they can produce content and own, uh, you know, back end points and uh, make producing fees, which is all they wanted in the first place. And that's what this big fight was with the WGA, that it was just these, you know, criminal Wall Street types trying to um, steal all the money. I think the movie does such a beautiful job of explaining what packaging is, which is one of those things that everyone hears about and no one really understands. Can you just briefly explain it since it provides such a big background, the beta test? Sure. So packaging is a term that was made up by the agencies to um, bring groups of their creatives together under the agency letterhead. So let's say you have a director in the agency and then an actor and a writer, and you bring them together to work on this TV show that the writer has created. Um, so that is considered a package that then they would go out to Netflix to sell or any you know studio or whatever. And then they make a huge amount of money through packaging fees, which is just organizing the creative team behind the project. 
And those contracts are often private. So the creators, the writers, um, you know, don't get any of that money. And it's something that is also, they have to pay 10% of their income to these agencies. So it's something that was created in order for these agencies to strong arm uh, the people with money um, to give them more of it and then to subjugate the creatives out of getting any of it. And it, as I understand, it was kind of a response to the free floating, you know, director is king 70s um, and Heaven's Gate and things like that, where movies maybe went a little too wild for the business ends taste and they decided they needed some sort of built in guaranteed success stories. And that's where you get sort of these 80s blockbusters continues in the 90s. A lot of agents get very rich. And now that whole system, you think, is just totally falling apart. Yes. Um, the, the, some of the big agents that we know of that have made money off of the backs of Adam Sandler and the like are selling their houses. Um, and, you know, it, it's a it's a very shitty system. The majority of the anonymous sources that we had talked about that of like people got into this industry because they saw Entourage as a commercial for their future. And <laughs> it was this kind of gold rush. You can laugh at it now. I can laugh at it now. But you know, if you're a stoned fraternity brother and you see these people in suits, that is a very appealing uh, job opportunity. And so people, if they're bad at math, can't go to Wall Street. And so they tell their parents that they're going to be working in film and they go and join these agencies where they work for minimum wage in the mailroom and still have to pay rent in Beverly Hills and pay for all this dry cleaning. It's like, it's such a ludicrous job to have. Um, but they get into the system and then there's all of this sunken cost fallacy of, well, I've been doing it for so long, I can't leave. It, it's very easy to feel stuck when you're an agent from all of this fucking testimony we got. But yeah. so many of them would say that they, you know, they're getting paid 45 grand a year. They share an office with someone and they share an apartment with someone, usually someone at the agency because they can't lose face, yeah. um, you know, with anybody else in the outside world. It's a really strange culture of silence and that appeal that got them there in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, that glimmer is, is no longer there. And now it's a bit like North Korea having to experience hyper-normalization and pretending that everything is okay when really um, you'd make more money doing anything on Wall Street. Yeah, and the, the buildings are all collapsing, which we kind of <laughs> comedically allude to in, in flashbacks in the <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah, surrealistly. Surrealistly, the, literally Hollywood is collapsing underneath Jordan and the chaos in a funny way. Aside from the windows that he breaks himself, of course. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the, the walls are coming down, not just from the, the internet doing it. It's also from the inside. Can you talk about these anonymous interviews you did? Yeah, sure. So uh, in the first, the first, yeah, sure. The first few were with assistant friends of ours that we knew through like Facebook or film festivals or whatever. And then they were just very interesting. So I took a thousand notes and then I tweeted after the, the second one. And I was like, does anybody know anybody that works in the you know, talent agency world? I'm just interested in just doing some research. I think I said asking for a friend. And then because it was me asking about it and some people knew that we were planning on making a movie about this, um, we had like a bunch of people DM me being like, hey, I don't, I'm not, but I know somebody that is and like we could connect. Um, but we interviewed about 11 people. Um, most of them were ex-agents or assistants or still currently in the world. Um, and we also interviewed like the spouses of them. Like that seemed to be just as interesting to find out what it's like to, to watch your partner lie all day and then come home and act as though they hadn't or that they're not gonna do it when they're at home. It's a very strange psychology. Um, 
And so we just found it, we found it very interesting. So I took like a thousand notes in my little notepad and then, uh, and then that became kind of the crux of the research, but we were already, you know, 60 pages into this first draft of the movie. And only then did we realize that the agency stuff, you know, focusing on lying and cheating was the most important thing in the film. So we had to get that right. And that took another fucking three months or whatever to just get the vernacular down of how these fuckers talk um, <laughs> and what they and what the office is like. But because of the internet, you know, we were able to connect with a bunch of people. And then Instagram has all of these uh, functionalities where you can tag yourself in a specific location. So you can look up uh, people that have tagged themselves in the CAA offices so that the wardrobe department can see how they dress in the last few weeks or um, what is on the tables, uh, like what magazines are on the tables. And like all of that stuff was based on this kind of uh, digital sleuthing that we did. Um, and it was very helpful. I feel like we, we we got it right. A few of the assistants at UTA reached out after watching the movie and they were like, yeah, that's, you nailed it. <laughs> you you got the Death Star perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The inner workings of, of Vader and the Death Star. Of the uh, Empire. Of the yeah. Empire, yeah. Well, then the movie in turn is about how you can sort of mine people's digital data to get very personal and figure out exactly what they want. And you kind of did the same thing. Yeah, we, we are Johnny PayPal or we yeah. want we, we fancy ourselves to be. <laughs> and, and not just that, that you, you can do that, but then also you can do it from your basement. And all it takes is one rogue actor using the Internet to completely subvert the industry that is there and make far more money than you could in that industry. And um, and yeah, that's not lost on us. Like we when writing the film. We're like, how many illusions can we make in the screenwriting to to put in these Easter eggs that we're we're these guys? We are the we are the anonymous monsters who are sneaking in with gunpowder into the parking garage to blow up the building. Like there are so many little things like that. That um, like in the opening, there's a Swedish murder, and the guy says, uh, "You got to keep the door closed, otherwise the termites will get in." If the termites get in, all it takes is one of them getting in. Like all of that is us, you know. It's like. Like, none of that is lost on us that we get to fit those little tiny things into the Again, sneaking into the cracks of the Death Star to infest the place. <laughs> yeah, go back to the kid. You guys yeah. did a live reading of Eyes Wide Shut about a week ago. Um, we didn't. They had to push it. Really? They had to push it. Yeah, they had to push yeah. it to December because uh, there was like dream cast that we wanted to have in it and uh, their schedule wouldn't work. And so we're kind of like in, in, a, in a holding pattern until December. Yeah. Okay, so I see some connections with Eyes Wide Shut in this movie. Can you For sort sure. of talk about how the two films are related, though? Yeah, um, there's a great interview with Bill Hader where he talks about Eyes Wide Shut being the best comedy ever made. And uh, I agree. Like, if it's so serious, but when you see footage or, like, stills of Stanley and the team on set and they're watching monitors, they're dying laughing. It's like it's, And that's how we were on this set, too. But the <laughs> movie, I mean, sex is so uncomfortable when you're watching it. It's not... Like when you're watching an erotic thriller, I can't take it seriously. Like PJ and I are both comedians. There's nothing like, I'm not getting anything sexual out of watching this thing. It's just funny to watch Michael Douglas, you know, hook up with Glenn Close or whatever. Um, and then with this one, we just purposely leaned into that of just like, how gratuitous can it be? How insane can it be? And how funny can it be? Um, so yeah, Eyes Wide Shut is this beautiful uh, analog mystery about a guy who, is sad and down and out and is a certain age and is easily swayed into wanting to be in this cool club of the elites. And then as soon as he gets in, 
he's gotten too far and is like, oh no. Um, and obviously the dialogue in that movie is amazing. Sidney Pollack and the billiard scene is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's um, the best scene ever. It's a high it's, watermark for cinema, that that sequence. Um, yeah. And just like these beautiful ornate sets and like beautiful Christmas lights everywhere. It's just, I don't know, everything and, about the set design was just so captivating. And then you just put Dr. Bill wandering around idiot. New York like an idiot, <laughs> yeah. uh, getting in way over his head. It's and like, hilarious. And like and, fantasizing about his wife fucking a sailor yeah, and he's like i was just pissed about it and it's just so funny it, how is that not funny and like the way they shoot it too he's just like he's furious and it's like the blue light and it's kind of half slow-mo it's just really it's stylized and funny. i've ever seen tom cruise it's oh it's like, humiliating it's and also really, the way he does cool. it like the, the performance yeah. he's like yes dr bill hello how are you? and he does this kind of facade of what it means to be a doctor and he's like he's like checking for breast cancer but he's like squeezing girls boobs in the offices and it's like this is how is this not fucking ridiculous um but then throughout the film you see him slowly fall off the wagon this guy who like loses that facade and all it takes is Sidney Pollack saying uh I know what you've been up to for the last 48 hours I was there and then immediately he's like, oh fuck. And he like changes, <laughs> the facade drops. And that is what is so interesting to us. Like most of the people who are in the workforce have to pretend to be their job. Like there's that John Paul Sartre quote who said, um, there is no such thing as a waiter. There's only people pretending to be waiters. And mm -hmm. like, as soon as you can break that facade, it's very funny and it's very interesting and humanizing. And that's a very similar arc to this film. We finally get to see the guy uh, I'll be honest and stop lying, you know, 80 minutes into the film. And it's so cathartic for an audience to be like, oh, I remember he lied about that 80 minutes ago. And it's just this wonderful um, <laughs> mea culpa. It's like an exorcism of this guy who can no longer bullshit. And um, it, it's the same kind of thing in Eyes Wide Shut. It's our favorite. Yeah, it takes ludicrous comedy at some points to finally admit the truth. After, like, I mean, at the end of Beta, when he's literally caught pouring lighter fluid on his clothes in the parking lot and still is about to try to lie. He still is like, I was in the car. And then, and like, is he really, how are you going to lie about this? And it's finally like, it takes the most ludicrous situation, <laughs> like an eyes wide shut, weird sex party at a mansion to finally just admit, like, yeah, what, like, we're all full of shit. And what are we doing? Drop the facade. It's enough. If anyone doesn't think Eyes Wide Shut is supposed to be comedic, I talked to Alan Cumming about two years ago and asked- oh, No way, that's one of my favorite scenes. That scene, the concierge, he's so good yeah. in that. And it's almost yeah. all one long take. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the big guys. Yeah. <laughs> Kubrick had him redo a dick joke again and again and again. So like Stanley Kubrick, 2001, really wanted to get the dick joke exactly right. So just if people aren't sure, I'm still holding my hands out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was it was a dick joke. The, the, the big guys and they come in. It, it, I, that scene is so wonderful where you get to get inside of this concierge life who like, it, it should be this kind of throwaway character, but he has all, he's just, it, Alan Cumming is so amazing to watch and he steals that scene. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> so this film, I feel like there are a lot of ways to interpret the beta test. And I have kind of three different directions I go in. Did you want it to be wide open to interpretation the way that Eyes Wide Shut is, I think? I or, mean, did you, or did you feel like there was a very direct answer to the riddle? Yeah, so throughout the film, we purposely made it um, uh, meticulous and we, we, we needed to make sure that it would work. So like all of the math is right. We're like, if, if every other person gave the $5,000 uh, to Johnny PayPal, 
to get connected to their anonymous lover, that would mean he would have almost $1.5 million. Like, and so we, were, it, we had to do all of the math properly and it all adds up. And the same thing goes with you know, getting the stuff out there. Like how many people would murder their partners if they found out? And then I was like, hey, it would probably be about eight in the first two weeks, like that kind of stuff. PJ was adamant about that, of like how long it would take, uh, you know, the, the letter to arrive. And then we had to get the dates right um, when they opened them. So it's like all of that stuff we, we wanted to make sure was, was correct. And then really, if you watch the film more than once, you can see all of those things and that they do add up. So there are very clear answers in the film. We just did like, the end of the film is a bit more artistic and subtle where you're seeing these things and then it's like, oh, maybe these are hypothetical. Maybe these are fantasies of the main character and what he's thinking, but they're not, they actually are real. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we ha yeah wanted to make sure like there was some logistical possibility to writing an algorithm that could actually collect all your data data and pair you with your search history soulmate. Also within vicinity, like kind of this weird specific Tinder to your area <laughs> to actually get you to someone without even realizing that you needed it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was honestly kind of the main thought process of a lot of the digital data stuff before even getting into the whole agent world. I mean, really making sure meticulously that this kind of thing could physically happen. Um, to make it more of a formidable world for Jordan to doofily navigate through <laughs> because it's it's very high stakes and very real, which made it scarier so that you can watch this guy go through it in a funny way. Uh, so yeah, had to make it as real as possible. It had to work. Yeah, It had to work, yeah. It totally works. I mean, it just it's one of those ticking time bomb movies just to be really, um, <laughs> really cliched. Um, but it does it does really add up well, I think. And I'd like to run my reading of it past you and people can check out at this point if they haven't seen it. And I highly, highly recommend that people watch the movie with before they listen to this part. Um, we haven't spoiled anything so far, but- Spoiler alerts, yeah. Spoiler, spoiler alerts. Um, my read is the reason that his fiance takes him back at the end, uh, Caroline, is that she has had her own affair um, via the envelope system. Um, yeah. I think she's pregnant with someone's child um, because she sort of touches her belly very subtly toward yeah. the end of the movie. And this might be a bridge too far, but I think you leave open the possibility that she's the one he had the affair with. Is that mm -hmm. nuts? So the first two, yes. The third one, no. Okay. Uh, yeah. so, so only because uh, if you look close enough at the hotel room sequence, it is the girl in the cafe. And we actually changed the credit in the film. So it says Olivia Applegate, um, hotel uh, lover and and girl in cafe. So it actually oh. was that person. And actually the first few screenings that we had in our backyard, um, people were like, well, wait, was that the person? And then PJ and I were like, what if we just put it in the credits? That way people will like wait for the credits and be like, oh, it was the same person. Okay, well. Um, so yeah, so it, it was Olivia in the hotel room and in the cafe, the girl that I confront very awkwardly, it was her. Um, and then the pregnancy, I, you're right, she probably is pregnant, um, but we do make it obscure as to whose child it is, but it could be it could be Jordan's or it could be someone else's. And when I asked Virginia Newcomb, who plays my fiance in the film, um, she said, do you know whose it is? And I said, no, and she goes, I do, and I'm never gonna tell you. <laughs> yeah. she's yeah. awesome she was she's amazing she's really she really great amazing she's amazing. yeah 
we left that up to her though, whose baby it was. So yeah, we don't, we don't know. And also when she committed the affair, that was another thing where she was like, I'm trying to figure out when I would have done it. And then she's like, I have an answer, but I'm not going to tell you that. And that'll be something that, and it kind of created this nice dynamic on set between the two of us where we, we, we couldn't really trust each other. And we're always trying to find out little needling things with each other it was fun. Yeah. And which scenes, you know, was she out when Jordan was out and you know, where, where was she going to do this, to do this affair and getting her letters about the say who got the letter first essentially and when and who yeah because i think she got farther along because she got her yellow envelope um and so was about to probably send it to meet up with her uh her new better organized lover (laughs) or better uh yeah i mean how could you not my character's such an idiot like why would anyone want to be with this guy you know it's like i don't blame caroline at all like i think i think she it is one of those things like Madame Bovary where like you have all this shame that you're, you know, cheating on your husband who's a fucking idiot. But like in those circumstances, I don't feel bad at all. This guy's a monster. Yeah. You know, I deliberately didn't look at the end credits because I thought you were going to fake us out somehow. Oh, so huh. I, I should have looked at the end credits and just gotten that answered. Wow. Huh. There you go. Um, Jim, you wrote an amazing piece in the latest issue of Movie Maker about the different ways of making movies. And I'm not going to ask you to summarize the whole thing here. I think people should just read it. Good, I won't remember it. I don't, I'm, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that you essentially are a movie studio. You have to be a movie yes. studio. And the agencies and the studios don't necessarily know more than you do. And they're kind of guessing and playing catch up. So make something that you really truly believe in with your friends, raise the money for it yourself, and then figure out the distribution. You may be That's distributing true. itself. That sounds very smart. That sounds very profound. I'm, I'm glad I I'm glad I wrote that. I don't, that sounds like something I would say. Don't remember <laughs> doing that, but um, but thank you for recounting it. Um, yeah, no, that's all of that is true. Um, you know, uh, we had set aside some funding for self distribution for the beta test, uh, because we had self distributed Thunder Road to great success, and really everything is becoming democratized where you can upload your film through aggregators to get onto iTunes or Netflix or Amazon. And it's kind of what any of these smaller distribution companies will do. These war criminals who steal the property of these filmmakers um, without telling them they could do it on their own and that they'd have much more success in doing so. Certainly we did. And then we did a studio movie called The Wolf of Snow Hollow where I didn't have to think about that as with MGM, which was great and freeing and, and a lot of fun. We got to play okay. in the snow. Uh, yeah. And then uh, with the beta test, we knew that that was an opportunity that we could do the full studio thing and distribute it. And then IFC called and they were like, we love this movie more than anything. Also, we put out Itumama Tambien and the death of Stalin and Loro. So uh, <laughs> would you be interested? Yeah. And, and then they, it was within the first conversation that we realized, yes, we want to, we want to work with IFC. That whole team is amazing. And they were going to do a much better job than any of us ever could. So it was like, yep, no brainer. Okay, great. And we were able to pay the investors back immediately after the first two weeks of being at the European film market, which is amazing. That never happens. Um, we were just very lucky and we feel that. And I think kind of the coolest thing about all of this is going back to the beginning, none of this keeps you from doing big studio movies. I mean, they've still let you do Halloween Kills. It qualifies you to do those movies. Like another thing is you think that if you just sit around and wait or knock on doors and constantly try and get the studios to take you seriously, that they're going to finally do that. And no, you have to already be doing well in the minor leagues for the major leagues to call you. Like, 
And really, PJ and I were in development for a bunch of stuff and pitching and different stuff, but we were short filmmakers. We had no business being taken seriously by Hollywood. But then we've made three or four feature films in the last four years that have only made us better filmmakers and much more qualified to do the thing well. So like that ability to get greenlit is only easier now because we made movies in our backyard for the last four years and, and kind of scrapped the system for a minute. Yeah, I, I shudder when I think about the fact if we had, hadn't shot this and had just kept waiting on these other projects that were stuck in development for years. I mean, we never would have made anything and we never would have gotten any farther. And so thank God we just said, let's stop waiting. Let's just go shoot something. You, you uh, have to do it on your own, Yeah, I, I think. Like, I, I don't, it's the same thing with music. Like, you can't, you can't go knock on, you know, Empire Records or whatever and try and get funding or Capitol Records to get funding. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta actually make music in your living room with your brother and, uh, and, uh, and just do it on your own. Like become, like, I feel like we're just the equivalent of SoundCloud rappers or whatever. We're like, we're using these small computers and same microphones probably. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of the landscape of, of cinema these days. It's certainly where the best stuff is coming from, I've noticed. Yeah, but you can still do big stuff too. But in the meantime, like I think Jim and I are going to keep making small stuff no matter what other bigger projects we get because it's fun and we can control it and tell our curse. weird little stories. We get yeah. to show sex. We get to show yeah. violence. You can't yeah. do that I mean, in the major The beta leagues. test was kind of the beta test to see if we could kind of do our own little studio and just keep pumping them out on our own no matter what we're doing otherwise because they're fun. <laughs> I don't know how we could possibly end better than that. That was so tidy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, well, thank you guys. I'm a huge admirer of your work and also just the way that you explain work to other people. It's, I think it's incredibly helpful and I point filmmakers to it all the time um, and tell them not to, you know, wait for Netflix to get back to them. Just go make your fucking movie. Yep. It's possible now. You can, you can run a crowd equity campaign tomorrow if you wanted to and raise the funds that you need to make the thing. And I think everybody should. And if you do that, it becomes a threat to the studio system and they have to start listening to you. Like, if you can say, actually, I can do it on my own, then they're like, oh no, I don't wanna be the people that said no to these people. Uh, you take all this money and go make the thing. Yeah, I think, I think really it is the only collective bargaining you know, and competitive advantage that we have as independent filmmakers is to be able to use the internet uh, better than the studios can. That was Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe talking about the beta test out now. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a very good movie. Uh, this episode is brought to you by producer Respin Sage. Our audio engineer is Kimberly St. Gaston Pierre. Sound design by Cletus Van Aubergine, and our theme is by The Hunks. No, it's all me, uh, Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. Visit us anytime at moviemaker.com. Check out the new issue of Movie Maker magazine. Oh, and subscribe. Um, we're hoping to give uh, Kimberly St. Gaston Pierre a small raise. Thank you.